So I've been thinking lately about the lost art of debate and the importance of words, what is said, what is left unsaid. Debating is not something that is generally taught in our schools in any depth in New Zealand. It's probably done more so overseas, and really it's just a polite name for a bit of an argument. Political campaigns are won or lost on a person's ability to score points against their opponent, on how quickly you can shut down the opposition, and how you can command that popular point of view. Now, everyone about my age or older will know the name Peter Dunn, and you will remember his ability to win just about every debate that he was involved in when it came to election time. You probably can't name much else about him or even what the debates were about, but he had that ability to just say the right thing that people liked. Yep. He was good at debate. Even within the context of Parliament, where debate is intended to test the robustness of proposed law and get it to a point where both sides are somewhat in agreement, yep. it often quickly descends into an opportunity to ridicule one another, right. to come up with a soundbite such as, OK, Boomer, or something equally insulting that just might go viral. It's become more and more about besting the other person, getting in the last word, and often shaming them in the process. What used to be a robust conversation around a shared meal with friends, where you would offer differing points of view and perhaps even be swayed in your thinking, has become a rarity. Where our teenagers and young people would in the past discuss the issues of the world in a healthy way, amongst their peers, face to face, and with a respect for and a willingness to hear another perspective. Now it is more common to share perspectives on social media, where anyone can jump in and say their bit, but really, nobody is listening to anyone else. Now, I like being able to have my say that probably comes as a bit of a surprise to you. I like to offer a well-thought-out, respectful, focused-on-facts response to an issue. But I remember a few years ago, it was around election time, and someone had posted something that I, it was just, it was, it was, I didn't agree with it. And so I did this lovely post that was fact-based and well thought out and not insulting and focused on the issue and didn't call anybody's reputation into, into you know, into question. And the person who put the original post up didn't like my point of view. So they deleted it and then they blocked me. And I remember thinking, well, what's the point of that? We use so many words, and most of them are not read, heard, or even remembered. Now, to be fair, I don't remember a lot of things. I don't remember a lot of things that are said, so that in itself is not the issue. I mean, even if you consider famous speeches in history, you can probably only name a couple, maybe quote one or two lines. And I'm willing to bet the names Martin Luther King Jr., Winston Churchill, and Jesus feature high up on the list of people who gave them. Words are flying everywhere. In the past weeks, I'm sure you will have seen and heard many things said in response to what is going on in America and around the world. And this is not a new problem. The events of the past couple of years have shown us this almost to the extreme as the world tries to navigate this mess that it is in and redefine what they can in an attempt to find acceptance, to find hope, and to find peace. 
We've got to a point where the words you say can and will be used against you. Cancel culture is not forgiving or full of grace. And what might be an acceptable point of view now might not be next year or even next week. So how are we supposed to navigate this? As followers of Christ, what do we do? Do we sit down and shut up? Do we become merely observers to the chaos that surrounds us? Do we try and engage in the argument in the hope that maybe, just maybe, we can convince one person of what it is that we believe? We are called to be salt and light, but it seems that nobody wants their meal seasoned and they'd rather eat it in the dark. (laughs) So then I started thinking about Jesus, and that's a good place to start. You see, even Jesus' disciples at times had difficulty understanding his perspective. They questioned what he was doing or why he was doing it. And those that didn't know him and weren't following him didn't have that relationship with him. They just thought he was mad. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had a big problem with him because he challenged them on their actions, their interpretation of the law, and how they were conducting themselves. It was only as his disciples spent time with him that you see those moments of revelation when they truly got what it was that he was saying and who, in fact, he was. We often refer to the upside-down kingdom, for even as God told us in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And in the Gospels, we see this revealed through Jesus. To the people he walked amongst, amongst, he was different. He represented a point of view, a way of thinking that was opposite to what they thought and how they lived. He was not the voice of the populist point of view. Jesus very encouragingly tells us in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. This is why the world hates you. The issues we face today may not be the exact same ones that Jesus faced but the heart behind them is exactly the same. So let's have a look at Matthew 22. Now, many of you will be familiar with this passage where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment? Now, the Pharisees weren't asking him this with great respect or a willingness to learn from him, but they had, in fact, just witnessed him debating with the Sadducees and teaching the people around some of the most contentious issues of their day. His authority had been questioned as well as his views on government and paying taxes to Caesar, and on marriage and the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't even believe that there was going to be a resurrection. And picking it up at verse 34, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Faced with all these differing opinions and ways of thinking, Jesus' response was love God, love others. Now, this is not to say he didn't engage in further discussion or debate. 
At the end of the chapter, after he puts a question to them that they can't answer, it actually says no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any questions. And in the whole of the next chapter, he actually calls out all of the wrong things that the Pharisees are doing. He may have shut down their questions, but as you continue to read about his teaching and his travels throughout the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees didn't give up. They just got a bit more sneaky. They took their thinking, their offense, and they started plotting behind closed doors on how they could silence him, how they could turn the crowd on him, and eventually convinced the governor and others that he should die for his message. Even Jesus, who has wisdom and knowledge beyond our comprehension, was unable to convince them that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that what he had to say was in his Father's name. Intelligent speech and words were not enough to transform their thinking. And in fact, you see in as many encounters with people that it was his actions that were often motivated by compassion, by his love, that led to others' understanding of who he was. In John 10, we even read of a number of Jews who are asking him to tell them plainly who he is. In verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. The people who did not know him, who did not see him as their shepherd, the promised Messiah, could not understand what he had to say. It was too far removed from their own understanding of things. Without the revelation of who Jesus is, then his words and the word of God are like a foreign language. All of this right here, that followers of Christ understand as God-breathed, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, is like a foreign language to those who do not know him. And out of all of this that was written at the time, out of all of the law, what Jesus said was the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor. Our job is to love God and to love others. His job is mediator between God and man. He alone can save. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And in John 3, 16, you can probably all quote it with me, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then in 1 John 4, verse 7, another very well-known verse, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And in verse 10 and 11, it then says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love God because he first loved us. We express that love for him by doing what we can to build relationship with him. Because of this love that he has for us, and because of our love for him, we are able to love others. And in fact, we are commanded to do so. We also can't do it without his love. 
For without the revelation of how much he loves us, we would give up. We do what we can so that he can do what only he can, change lives. When we know Jesus and experience his love, then we want to share that with others. It is out of this revelation of who he is, of all that he has done for us, that we are called to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, if you've ever journeyed with somebody from a place of unbelief to relationship with Jesus, then you will know that discipleship is not about us exerting our will for others' lives, but helping them to discover God's will for themselves. When we start that relationship from a place where we focus on what people do or don't believe about the issues of today, the stuff the world demands that we have an opinion on, we forget to ask the most important question. Do they know Jesus? Have they been introduced? We cannot expect people who don't yet have the revelation of Jesus to understand the principles of God's God's kingdom. Think about when you teach kids to play a sport or a game. You don't start by giving them out a big, massive list of rules that the game requires and then expect them to be able to follow it all immediately. Typically, with the junior grades, you teach them the point of the game and maybe a couple of rules to get them started. Take hockey, for instance, because that's a sport I know a little bit about. I'm not going to talk about rugby because I don't understand that game. But take hockey, for instance. The rules you start off with are generally about their safety. You must wear a mouth guard. Don't raise your stick above a certain height. You can't hit the ball through the air. And no, you can't hit other players. <laughs> then once they've got the hang of those basics, then you introduce a few more rules. You can only hit the ball with this side of the stick. And you can't kick the ball with your feet. This is not soccer. As they progress through the grades and their knowledge of the game increases, then more complex rules come into play. If you didn't take this approach, then the whistle would be blown every few seconds. And the kids would soon give up on the game because it's too hard and it's no fun. The role of the coach is to develop the kids' skills and understanding of the game, and then the referee's job is to then enforce the rules that they've learned. The more proficient a player gets at the game, the more they understand that the rules are intended so that the game flows, so that no one gets hurt, and everyone is able to play better. One of the most frustrating things as a player of any sport is when you know the rules, and you have to play with others who don't. It's probably happened in just about every PE class ever. You get hit around the ankles, or tackled from the wrong side, and you get frustrated and annoyed, and they get frustrated and annoyed at you, and everybody's just frustrated and annoyed. And it all really comes down to one simple thing. You have a different understanding of the game. When we try and get people to understand a kingdom perspective of the world, when they don't know the king, it's like asking them to play a sport that they've never had the opportunity to learn. They don't yet have the benefit of the Holy Spirit, the coach, to teach them and to guide them. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be passionate about issues. And in fact, we want Jesus to break our hearts for the things that break his. But we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. Relationship with Jesus. Often the best thing that we can do when something stirs in us, when we feel that righteous indignation or we feel the weight of this broken world, is to pray. Prayer has the ability to shift things 
and the supernatural. And yet we often try and rely on our words and our natural ability. When we pray, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for the lost, the lonely, the broken, that they would know what it is to experience God's love for them, we are aligning ourselves with God's heart for his people. Do the people that are my neighbors, the people that I have relationship with and influence over, do they know what it is to be loved by God? And if not, how can I show them? How we love speaks louder than any words. Love is what moves us from that moment of compassion to a place of action. Love is what motivates us to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor. Love is meant to be outworked practically. It's showing up again and again and again for people that others have given up on. It's being there for someone even when they are in circumstances of their own making. It's knowing when to say something and when to be silent. It's praying for those who oppose you. It's responding with kindness when you have every right to be angry. It's putting others ahead of what you want. Love is what sets us apart from the way the world operates. The world will try and put law and policies in place to determine how we treat each other. But as Dave is fond of saying, you can't legislate love. We love because God first loved us. Love led Jesus to the cross, and love is what will lead others to Jesus. We are called to love God, to love others, and in doing so, we allow him to change lives. I think it's important to point out at this point that this journey of loving God was never meant to be about following a list of rules and regulations, but about relationship. The reason for Jesus was to restore our relationship with the Father, Jesus has paid the price once and for all, and we don't have to offer sacrifices and wear ceremonial dress and eat certain foods in order to be saved. Under the law, there were all these steps and rules and things that had to be done to make people right with God before they could approach him. But under grace, because of Jesus, we can come as we are. We have access to God through Jesus. We don't have to wait until we've already earned it. Accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, confessing our need of his forgiveness, means that we are able to fully step into that relationship with him, to be able to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. As we get to know him more, the Holy Spirit begins his job of transforming us from the inside out. This is where it would be great if I could say, look, this is what he has done in me and give you a wonderful example of the change in my life from before I accepted Jesus to now. But the reality is I became a follower of Christ as as a child of around seven or eight. So I didn't have a life of drug and alcohol dependency or crime or anything that demonstrates a dramatic turnaround. The changes in me are not so obvious. I know that as a child and a teen, I made choices that set me apart from my peers. And as a young adult, the people I worked with knew that my life was a bit different to what they did, and what I believed was different to their way of thinking. Obviously, I had a different workplace than I do now. But perhaps what is more significant is what and where I would be if it wasn't for Jesus. The things that the Holy Spirit continues to refine and work on in me are the things that could have led me to a very different life. Where I tend to be selfish, 
he reminds me to put others first. When I find myself getting angry, his reminder is about self-control, patience, and love. I would love to stand here and say, I've got it all sorted. I'm well along on this journey of loving God, loving others, and allowing him to change my life, but I'm still a work in progress. What I do know, and probably what is true of a large proportion of people who find their way to Jesus, is that I had people who showed me Jesus through the way that they loved me. I'm sure many of you would echo that experience. The more we allow him access to every part of our lives, the more we understand his ability to change us, and the more, that we, des- the more we desire that he do so. The more we understand that only he has the power to change us, the more we are willing to trust him to outwork that change that he desires and those that we know and love. There's a statement on our website that covers what we believe as Life Church, and it says this We are a church that seeks to know God through prayer, praise, and the reading of God's word, worshiping Him through the use of our time, finances, talents, and spiritual gifts with the desire to see His kingdom grow. We love people, all people, and express that love practically as much as spiritually, with each person effectively representing Jesus wherever they do life. It is our desire that we see lives changed through the establishment and development of an intimate relationship with Christ. And in turn, each believer will be equipped to live a life that will serve as a witness to our generation. I could have saved a lot of time this morning and just started with Matthew 22 and then jumped straight to this. But this is what it comes down to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. When we know God, we love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. We spend time in praise, prayer, and his word, and we worship them with all that we have. When we love people, meeting practical and spiritual needs, representing Jesus as best we can wherever we go, then we will see lives changed as people come into that place of intimacy with Jesus. Tame, if you could come back. You know, we all start our journey to Jesus from a different place. Some of us are far more outwardly messy than others. Some of us seem to have it all together. Some of us take the long road. Some of us get the express elevator but we all have at least one thing in common. We all need Jesus. So let's remember to put him first, to keep him the main thing, to trust fully in him as we navigate this crazy world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your son, Jesus that there is nothing that we could have done to earn your love, that there is nothing that we could have done to earn this gift of salvation, that because you loved us, you sent your son Jesus to die, to take the weight of our sins upon that cross so that we can have relationship with you. 
Jesus, we thank you for all that you are, for all that you've done, and for all that you continue to do. And Holy Spirit, we invite you. Change us, God. Help us to become more like Christ so that as we go into our day-to-day, as we are around the people that have opposing views, that your love shines through, that your truth is evident, and that your heart would cause a response in them so that they might come to that place of intimacy with you. Thank you, Jesus. I wonder if we can just do something now. I think we've all got people in our lives that we long to see in relationship with Jesus. And I wonder if you can just think about those people right now, and we're just going to spend a minute or two praying for them, that God would be revealed in them, maybe through your influence, maybe through your love. So just bring those people to mind. Father, we lift up every person that we are thinking of right now, that we know needs to be in relationship with you. God, we give them into your care. And we declare that we trust you to do what you can do in their lives. God, help us to love them. Help us to show grace towards them, even when they say and do things that we don't understand. Help us to continue to show up day after day to be the voice of encouragement, to provide for their practical needs, and to show them Jesus wherever we can. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to them who you are and your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord God.